This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. <laughs> Hello, I'm Denny Somak, and this is The Rock Podcast. Now, I'm a rock historian, producer, and best-selling author, and have been conducting and collecting thousands of interviews over the years. I try and present great stories from my archives, and we also have newly recorded conversations. That's what we have today. I'm really excited because I got a hold of Steve Howe from Yes!, who doesn't do lengthy one-on-one interviews very often. But I've known him for over 40 years, and he was eager to talk. He was very candid, really gave a lot of inside stories that I know you will not hear anywhere else. So, Yes has a new album out, Mirror to the Sky, and they'll be touring. Only the European dates have been announced, but if history is any guide, I'd be willing to bet you'll see them in America before perhaps the end of this year. So I want to just let things roll and hope you will enjoy listening to this as much as I had speaking to Steve. So let's just go with our recent conversation with the legendary guitarist, Steve Howe. Welcome, Steve. Are you, um, are you at your, uh, your home? I'm, I'm at the studio. Yeah. I'm at the studio, which is part of our life, you know? Yeah. Okay. In the West Country. What <laughs> studio are you working at now? My studio. Oh, your studio. Okay. I, actually, I think I've been there once. Right. Yeah, I think you did. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I, I think I was there with the guy from Ultravox. Does that make sense? Right. Uh, well, yeah, I was working with uh, Billy Curry, uh, but that was at his studio in uh, London. Okay. I got him confused. Right. His brain's a little fuzzy, too. Okay, don't worry. Right. It's a long time ago. Anyway, so we got a lot of stuff to talk about. You got a lot of stuff going on. Uh, obviously, we're going to start with the new album, um, which Mirror to the Sky. It came out pretty quickly after the Quest, which is an unusual thing for Yes to do two studio albums so close together. But I want you to talk to me about the new album and a little bit about the Quest because. I had heard that somehow they were connected only in the sense that when you finished the quest, you just wanted to continue going. So you ended up 
with a second album. So could you explain that? Yeah, there's one, you know, other little detail in there that, that obviously made it work was that we were doing the quest and, you know, we were doing more material really than we needed. And uh, it got to a point where I said, well, look, you know, to be expedient, we'll, we'll pick the tracks we're actually going to use, you know, and anything else we'll just have to leave because, you know, we want to get this all done. So everybody agreed and we left two 10 minute tracks that weren't like detailed. They had all the guide parts and they had some shape. So they're both 10 minutes. So we finished the quest and then waited a while. Of course, you know, you, you do all the mastering and then the, then there's the release date and uh, <laughs> the album's coming out and uh, we're all excited. You know, the quest is coming out. And so I suggested to Thomas that in fact, you know, were he and, and Sonny interested in, in, in there being a, another record? And he was very surprised. And he didn't know about the two other tracks. We had no reason to tell him that. I think I'd mentioned that we had other things that they were a bit acoustic, you know, which was partly true. So basically, um, when he said, well, how do you feel about it? I said, well, I think the band would just like to continue, you know. So we had a gap, you know, between actually mastering and finishing off the, the quest and then a few months passed and the release date came along and then uh, as i say thomas got an approval back so we basically while that was coming out we were starting to look back at those two tracks which became luminosity and mirror to the sky because the mirror to the sky got expanded it wasn't called that at the time but it got expanded with some other ideas and it's grown to be the title track. So, we, you know, it's it's been a nice development. So, yeah, we got on with the recording, much like we were with the Quest. In other words, the old days, we drove ourselves nuts for like two months, three months in one time zone. Here's the record, make the record, you know, like crazy guys. And that was the only way you knew how to do it. But of course, now we can make a record over a year where, you know, some months didn't do anything much, you know, or we were working at home studio. And then we would, then we had the HQ studio, which was my idea of working with Curtis Schwartz, a guy, great engineer I've been working with for years. He's a musician, producer, engineer. So basically he he's our go-to engineer and, and he's kind of has all the stuff coming in his studio and he's got all the gear and stuff since I'm, i don't record on a computer i record on a hard drive but it's really like recording on tape more than anything else which is how i like it because it's how i know how to do things but anyway his place the sky's the limit you know and that's where we go to when we're developing and bringing in files from you know the bass from from la or something you know the drums but basically the bass and drums kind of come on later when we basically well he's Billy often has provided a track with his bass on already, as, as one example. But um, where he hasn't, then we'll, we'll comp parts in. And then we start flying it around, you know, and gradually, well, we get opportunities to meet in in, in the studio, in HQ. Uh, it's near Brighton. It's not far from where Roger Dean lives. That's why he comes and visits right. sometimes. Right. So basically, it's really convenient. And... Um, so we just polish up the tunes and then we leave it for a month and we come back and we do another few days and somebody else has done something and there's a new song and blah blah. You know, so it's just like a kind of evolving but there's no um no regular pattern about it. It's just when when we've got something else to really work on, then we'll reconvene, if you like. But I do a lot of reviewing here at my studio, where obviously if I spend a few days on tracks, you know, I come back and and then I then I leave it for a few days <laughs> and do something else. And then I run around a bit and then suddenly go, oh, yeah, I'll listen to that. 
and then when I hear it then it's a review you know I mean I can't help but go oh yeah but but that's too loud or we need another one of them or that's got to come you know you start developing ideas even if you're not in actually in the studio um, so that's how we, you know, we did this through last year, leaving a big gap for UK tour, Jap Japanese tour, American tour of 45 shows. Uh, but we we finished, we thought we might finish at Christmas, but we didn't. So we went into January and um, did all the, you know, special mixings and uh, 5.1, Dolby Atmos. We did all that, you know, in January, really. And I think we just delivered it in February. And so it is very fresh, but the, you can see how leading off with two quite big tracks from the quest aided us in the momentum not really just we weren't looking for time but we had the momentum of knowing that we had some more music which was was going to be developed in it to to the way that we liked it right now i i know you dropped a couple of singles already uh, isn't uh, today or tomorrow the official release date of the album i believe so yeah yeah and also we've just released circles of time which is uh really the ballad on the album if you like which is a remarkable song of john's yeah. and uh yeah that's come out with a video uh that's coming out tomorrow i think so it's in it's in it's all in sync i think <laughs> so let, let's talk i know you know the pandemic threw everybody off and of course you had to cancel a couple of tours and there's reasons for that but now uh the tour is set for the 23rd of may of 2024 is that correct? In, in at Bridgewater in Manchester? Yeah, yeah. The UK dates have been announced. So that's part. We're doing things before that, but we'll come back to that. You know, that that we've announced the UK dates because we got the Albert Hall and we just went like, this is the time to do this. And now before that, it's going to come a European show, European leg that will cover some of the territories, not all of them, some of the territories that we missed this year. So in that way, we're kind of fulfilling our European and UK responsibilities and uh that's going to be um yeah you, you mentioned the uh royal albert hall that's a big deal you've played there a number of times do you remember the first time as a member of yes that you played the royal albert hall and how you felt <laughs> i do uh well i i mean i played there before but as a member of yes the first time i played was on the iron butterfly tour and i think it was the end of the tour as well and I tell you, we got on there and we were scared. <laughs> you know, it was so intimidating because, I mean, I played there before and it was quite exciting. But, uh, you know, it wasn't really of this ilk. But this was a really keen show. I'm Butterfly were, were selling well. Yes, we're like a new band. We got on there. And I think it was pretty tantalizing. It's got a different kind of sound. In, back then, it most probably had less sound buffers and things um so it it may have felt a bit like maybe this sounds dreadful but you know you, you just got to believe that you're so lucky to be on those boards where so many great musicians have played before so yes uh i do remember it uh i remember the well things were so different back there you know it was smoky you know they didn't need you didn't need smoke on stage because the place was but anyway the whole thing was kind of like of its time, you know, 1971. But uh, I played there before in 1968, and Would maybe you play with before in 68. Um, I played with that group Bodas that I came, but it was before tomorrow I was in. It was not after tomorrow. Uh, God, I'm getting mixed up with my career. I've never done that before. Uh, Syndicates, In Crowd, Tomorrow, Bodas. Yes. So Bodas came after that. And we, 
it's a funny story if you want, want to hear yeah. a brief one. And that yeah. is that I, we were playing as an opening act, really, on a show that I think had Chuck Berry. Well, I knew it had Chuck Berry. I don't know whether the Who were on the same night, but it was called The Rock Proms or something. It was a fairly big disaster. So this was in 1968, as I remember. And uh, or could have been 69. But basically what happened was uh, we got to the rehearsal and that was my, I think, my when I walked on to Albert Hall and stage and thought, my goodness, and we were just a, like a, a fairly pokey startup band, you know, right. called Bodas. Nobody knew us and we were fairly nervous, I guess. But basically Chuck Berry walked out and said, well, you're my backing band, you know, because we didn't know that. So uh, we were going to be Chuck's backing band. So the funny thing was, he comes out and goes, OK, well, I'm Chuck Berry. And I'm but he points at me and says, but we don't need you. <laughs> right, <to me. laughs> oh, boy. We don't need you. You know, so I thought, well, I thought I was just going to like chug in the background, follow, you know, when he moves up the chord, I'll go up to the next one. But no, he didn't want me on stage. But to compensate for that, what I did was in the interval, I went to his dressing room and I knocked on his door. And he said, yeah, he said, uh, uh, Chuck, it's uh, Steve, the guitarist, you know, so I'll come in. And I took my 175 guitar into him. I said, Chuck, what do you think of this guitar? And he looked at it. I saw his face go. And he went, Yeah. And he goes, and he went, wow, this thing's great, you know, great. Oh, this is great, you know. So, I mean, I knew I had a great guitar, but but when Chuck did that, so he's one of the only, Martin Taylor was played by guitar, and Chuck Berry, I don't think anybody else really has, except a Russian, Russian border, border officer played it once, much to my horror. Can you imagine? He dragged right, the guitar. Wait a minute. Yeah, you got it. There's a story here, right? Yeah. A Russian customs officer after delaying us for an hour looking for something right called something you know yeah. hidden somewhere you know, searched the mercedes completely and then he looked at the guitar i said that's my guitar i said don't touch you know, my guitar i was like well i don't really want him to touch it but I, if, if i said to him don't touch it he's still gonna touch he opens the guitar and actually picks it up and i go very careful be very very careful i'm like going a horror in like the horror of my one of the worst times with my guitar experiences besides a few with british airways but <clears throat> so basically he put it back in in the case and the guy did actually hold it so you know to qualify the, the true history of how many people have, other people have played my guitar besides people who've maintained it of course most probably played it a bit but i've been very possessive you, you, that? you know a few minutes with chuck uh, 10 minutes with martin taylor and the russian security guard <laughs> oh dear so you've done the um the tours before where you've done complete albums and everything, but this tour is, is going to be called what? Well, basically it's called the, the classic tales of yes tour. Now, the reason is that, yeah, it is, it is about time. We thought about tales, but we're not doing anything terribly conventional. It's not a, it's not uh, an album series to us, not branded album series, which, you know, we've done many, many times and we love, love doing that, but we want to do our show. We want to kind of, Put our show slightly in a different way the way we're coming forwards and the music we select and, and how that music drives through a show so we're um we're dreaming up a show that does include some new music because i think mirror has has been warmly received so we're going to play something from from mirror to the sky right. um but also you know we're, we're kind of thinking about what else we can do but we can't give much away at the moment 
you, are you gonna are you gonna be telling stories behind the songs as you go along in more depth than you have? I mean, is it more of a a songs and stories tour? No, I, I don't think I'm ready for that. Um, no, I mean, I, I I like the band talking on stage. I mean, you know, John and me do most of the talking, and and I think that should be kept to a minimum. <laughs> yeah, I like shows when I see a band come on and play a song, play another song. <laughs> Nothing gets said. Just we're here for the music, let's play the music. So when we can do that, I think now when we've got transitions, like I know I've got to change a guitar or somebody's got to do something, obviously it's useful if somebody fills in the gap. And that's where John and I kind of try and pave it out a little bit. Uh, he might be getting a guitar, so I've got to talk. But basically I'm happy to talk, but no, I, I don't think I'm quite ready for that. But who knows? You know, it's an idea. I wouldn't say no, but I don't know if it's this tour. Are, are you going to include any uh, Asia tunes? <laughs> I think One Night Yes did play here at the moment. I, I think yeah. that is a fact. Right. So, um, it might have been, yeah, when it might have been when John passed away, actually. I can't quite remember, but hopefully somebody knows. Um, no, it's an interesting idea. We, we did think about playing ABWH, you know, because quite often in the compilations of Yes, you know, Rhino and Warner Brothers in their wisdom, I think, you know, kind of thought, well, it's not really that different. Let's just put it in there. And we did. Um, so, but doing Asia would be a little bit unusual, but it, it's almost like what Asia did. Two members yes. of the band, so. Yeah, that's what I was about to say, that when Asia reformed, you know, in 2006 and went out on tour in 2007, we did a, a leg of touring, you know, maybe a year of it, where we were doing like what we called a career tribute kind of tour, where we did Roundabout. And so Asia were playing and we did, you know, fanfare and all this. And, and we tried Part a couple of, of things. King, I think you did too, right? Yeah, we did video as well, which was kind of like really quirky, of course. But um, yeah, I... I don't know. I, I, like, again, I don't know if you should ever say no to something. Right. Um, but uh, I wouldn't want to pull a uh, yes round to Asia unless there was a lot of willingness. And But, you know, things happen and, you know, the, things come around and, and things things can happen sometimes that you don't expect. <laughs> I want to ask you, because I know it, it, it was a couple of years ago, but the 40th anniversary of the drama album came around. Yeah. And you know, people are in different camps about it. I happen to think the album was great. I don't know if you remember, I was at Townhouse Studios when you were recording that. We were working on an NBC radio special. But what are your thoughts now about drama? And what songs from drama do you think you, you might play? Well, okay, we're going to play something from drama, but I can't tell you what it is. But all I can say is that there isn't any, anything on drama that I don't love. You know, there's nothing. There's, there's no, I mean... All of it. I, I adore that record. Uh, it was it was really challenging to make, but it wasn't difficult in the sense that all the previous albums have been difficult. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we were kind of set free, a bit like we are now. We're kind of we're kind of set free, thinking, well, we got to steer this. You know, just right. get on with it. <laughs> Shut up and get on with it. And so there was a lot of musical opportunities. You know, obviously having Trevor in the band was was great and things like that. So to me, the way it was worked was had all the traditional approaches of how Yes would construct a record. But the mm -hmm. difference was Jeff Downs and Trevor Horn 
were, were nothing like you know John and Rick. So it, there was a there was a new there wasn't just one guy coming in going oh I think I'll change yes a bit by doing like Patrick did when he came in you know he changed yes because he came in and went we did all that stuff which was marvelous and basically this was much calmer uh, and more determined. Chris, Chris was a great person for determination, you know, and he was always very determined to get through things and work out the problems. But um, so basically that is a joy, that whole record from the to the very end, you know, Tempest Fuger. I mean, there, there was, I mean, we had that structure of Tempest Fuger pretty well mapped out uh, before Jeff, uh, uh, Jeff and Trevor came in. That was left over from the uh, Paris sessions? I don't really think it was. There's a lot of theories. Um, sometimes people have played me something and I go, oh yeah, is that really true? But um, certainly it was because of the three of us working for a few weeks on our own that we yeah, maybe dragged that out of something. But I, I wasn't aware of that because what we got together was, was a kind of manic, and it is very, very fast. The tempo on that tune is remarkably fast. And and basically it's a it's a very exciting uh concept to to start really where you could where you plan to continue you know where it really does cook you know so i i think the whole album is uh is fantastic actually you know yeah i, mean, I can't really fault it uh i really do love it you know well if i'm not mistaken i think machine messiah is in your list of top 10 yes songs yeah it is because one thing I, when I listen to it and when I play it, it, it seems endlessly longer than ten minutes. <laughs> I mean, it's got so much density in it. There's so many things, and they're all very exciting. Yeah. So again, you see, like John comes in and does some acoustic guitar. John Davison has done on the Quest and uh, and uh, Mirrors of Sky. Same with Trevor. You know, we had some of Trevor's chords in the middle. Ding 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 ding. He's doing something. And that was how involved we all were. There was there was lots of sharing, and uh, it was a great time. I mean, touring was a lot harder and a lot more problems than making the record actually. But of course, we were, we were in the mode of making records, much like uh, you know, yes, were when we went from the Quest to Mirror. You know, we kind of after the Paris tapes disaster, that was just such a mess. You know, and there was a resurrection. You know, in this little place called Red Am Recorders, which is a rehearsal room and a studio. And we just played in this tiny little room. It's actually almost not any bigger than the room sitting in, you know, but we just hammered away in there. So I'm just rattling on really about, about the fact there was something going on before we got Trevor and Jeff, but boy, did it uh, kind of elevate and twist nicely when, when it did come in. So very nice record. So last time I, I actually saw you, I think was in Philadelphia on the 50th anniversary tour. Oh yeah. Which you had uh, Tony K was there, Patrick was oh, yeah. there. Uh, what you had ten members of the group all in one so, place. How did that make you feel? I, it was beautiful. It's a beautiful thing to do. That, that it just shows that when when harmony and, and friendship and and work can can get balance. You know, it, this is this is a wonderful industry to be in. You know, and you meet some great people, and years later you get back with them, and it's nice. But um, basically, it's usually the people that you've stayed in touch with quite a bit. And, and somehow Tony has just always been around, yes, you know, for, for, for many, many years. And this was a great opportunity to give him, uh, a, you know, a gig, a gig to do it. Uh, and, and similarly, we did with Trevor Horn, you know, we would have done many shows where Trevor's either sung Tempest Future or did we try something else? I think we did. 
Um, so basically, um, we like to do that, but it has to really feel right, you know, to share the stage. Uh, and uh, it, it doesn't often feel that right. But certainly what, what we don't want to do is cause commotion or doubt about where we, we are. So we've always kept a very, you know, sort of level-headedness about it. Well, I remember Chris always used to tell me that yes is more of an idea and a concept <laughs> than a band. It doesn't matter. You're playing yes music. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I know you generally feel that way. And I'm going to ask you um, to make some comments about Alan. But before that, what are your reflections on Chris? Now you've had a period of time. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't do it justice. <laughs> I mean, we, we spent years working together, fighting some of it but fighting not because of personalities, but because of what we thought, what, what we thought was worth fighting for, which was generally music. Right. And, uh, you know, uh, so, you know, captivating when, when I went to play the audition with Yes and, and Chris was there, you know, with his twangy bass and everything. I thought, Jesus, this is going to be hell, but let's get in, you know, let's, let's get into this because everybody was so technically proficient, but also creative and I, I and i think that's the way chris continued he never stopped he, he never really he, he never put anything in front of his bass playing you know I mean? <laughs> when it came to it his his bass playing was what he stood and fell by you know he he would always make it his trademark you know and uh, sometimes it would be an obsession like it is with us all and i i, I think the other day i was playing a couple of yes songs considering them for the live live shows and things and the bass was so loud I, I suddenly remembered like well it must be that Chris was there going yeah let's have the bass even louder so there were some wonderful um moments of of how Chris could could inspire and you know but it took patience because he he was a bit slower he would take a long time to do a great job you know so he knew the job was going to get done it just take a little bit longer so he was, he could also be very charming, very persuasive. Was, Steve, by the way, have you, um, <laughs> have you heard about, you know, he was also very, uh, he moved in his own sort of way, his own sort of state, but a, a lovely charmer. And of course, you know, we were friends from 1970 all the way through. I mean, sure, ABWH shows you that Rick, uh, 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 Chris was unpopular with the members at that time. And he, and, uh, you know, we let him be for a while, but uh, basically, by the time Keys to Ascension came along in 1995, so I was working with Chris all the way through there till till the end. You know, I remember Chris telling me on a number of occasions. I know it, it didn't necessarily happen, but he said, "You know, when we get into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I would like all 21 members that have ever been in the group to appear." Did he ever mention that to you? Quite often, and wouldn't he have been disappointed? I mean, he would have been thrilled that we'd been inducted and he'd been inducted, blah, blah, blah. But his goal was the same as what we were hoping for, too, that that every ingredient of yes members would, would be represented. But but I'm sure I'm not the first person to say that's not how you can do it, because right. their model, their, the, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame reputation stands and falls, really, on what they design what, for that show. And if they want somebody in, they'd like them in, please, very much. And But I found them wonderful to work with, by the way. Really nice people. And I've got nothing but admiration for them. But they, they do have a persuasive way of saying, well, this is this is the way we see it. But uh, the other thing was, 
yeah well there's lots i no i'm not going to say much you know about it well but, yeah. tell us tell us about i know it's been a couple of years now uh, tell us about uh, on that night how you felt because i was there everybody yeah. gave their speech i know rick talked too long and told yes. too many jokes and but well, overall how did you feel uh I, I think I always feel a sense of achievement when I get some, through something very, very difficult. <laughs> and it was pretty difficult. It, could, it needn't have been. But I think what it, what happened was, even after the performances, it, it got continuously more difficult, even though it shouldn't have. I mean, after the performance, that should have been it. OK, the, the, the slate is clean. Let's move right. forward. But of course, we got roped into lots of interviews. And in those interviews came all these crazy moments when people were saying things that weren't, you know, consistent with one another things like that but um i mean look in the end what is it it's an award you know and it's great it's nice to get it and i think we're all very proud that we did get it and going back to what you said about chris he of all people felt that the industry had never really shown us a you know even a thumbs up let alone a, a hip hip hooray so chris always felt there was something missing from the way that yes i mean it might have been quite influenced by the you know the Rolling Stone magazine, that their attitude towards us for about 30 or 40 years was, uh, you know, yes, prog band, yeah. you know, sort of There's like a, a prog side. bias there by Young. Yeah, yeah, we, we were there a little bit and not really appreciative. And Chris was right that they didn't appreciate us. But but you, you, that's what that's a dangerous thing to expect, you know, appreciation. If you get some, then soak it up and enjoy it. But you were going to ask me about Alan, of course. Yeah. I want, I want you to give a few comments on Alan because it's it's obviously yes. more fresh in your mind. Absolutely. Well, of course, we were talking about drama and drama, as I said to him, when we came back to play the drama album, I said, you know, that's some of your most powerful drumming. You know, it was a great time and it was a wonderful time for him. Um, so that was where you could say he he really came together, but he had to come together really quick for, for yes. And uh, as you can see, on going for the one on on so many albums, he he always rose to the occasion. So um, we came, we became good friends. We were actually partners in a health food store before they were even really that popular, um, <laughs> which wasn't very successful. But uh, basically, our music was together. And even though we didn't play in the eighties, we, we touched we touched base a little bit. But obviously, once you know the union tour and the other things. I was back more in his camp, you know, by 95, uh, as, you know, Rick had done as well by going back with the Keys to Ascension project. And then Alan and I spent all those years. And, and yeah, I mean, there were just so, we did so much work together again. And we, you know, we, we, we had a lot of fun. I mean, there was a lot of fun to have in the 70s, which was like a, a splatter gun sort of fun. You didn't know what you were in for, which roadie was going to go crazy or which private jet you're going to travel on next. Or it was all kind of like, what's happening? Yeah. But by the time the 90s, everybody had to get into their pattern, you know, how they worked. And, you know, I was doing a lot of touring by road and the guys were mixing their methods, you know. So um, I don't you, know you were doing the, you were doing your own car thing, right? I was, then. yeah. I started doing that with Asia uh, fairly rapidly. I, fa I found that that was the way it suited me best to to tour, and uh, and I'm really pleased to see the guys <laughs> as opposed to spending all day with them in, in uncomfortable positions and you know just needing a a gap almost, you know. Right. But anyway, um, 
um, where were we? I, mean, I know we were heading to Alan, but you keep putting something in front of Alan. Yeah, and, well, I, I'm just, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. it's different now, but... but yeah, I know. What I should have done is say this. So as the 2010s and, and 2015s went on, you know, the pressure on Alan got, got pretty hard. So that's when Jay Shellen was able to depth for him sometimes and do parts of the show that were taking a big load off, off Alan's. So he was never going to give up. Alan was, Alan was always going to go on until he uh, you know, couldn't provide anymore. And basically he was a, a total, uh, total committed musician. You know, he's, he'd given all that time from, you know, 1973 onwards, you know, to, to right. yes, really he, he, he didn't, do a lot of side projects and he he couldn't find time to do much more than yes because he gave his all so yeah we all loved alan he was a charming guy you know he was friendly he was he was very warm and a very special human being now when you joined yes in 1970 you really helped change the sound of the band basically a little bit more acoustic that acoustic that and you also did what many consider to be the real breakthrough, which was the Yes album. And I just want to ask you about a couple of songs, because I know, again, I know your top favorite Yes songs and in, in doing the research. Well, that changes. That may have changed, but... I've yeah, well, you're, you're here to set the record straight. I mean, I remember on the list, when I would ask you about this, you would say Starship Trooper was one. So make a couple of comments. So, yeah, I mean, Starship Trooper is an epic. I mean, it became even more epic as it went on stage, you know. But if you look at the recording, it's, it's a beautiful recording. But basically, I recorded that with a clean guitar sound. It had no phasing or flanging. Because in those days, you had to commit to something you liked. You really liked it. Right. And you didn't know about flanging or what was going to happen. So, basically, I had a clean guitar. And that meant that when I affected it, it... It added that one of the quirky things about the, about the tune that it's got anyway, and we had some good parts. So I mean, in those days, days the rehearsals were never wasted. I mean, the rehearsals about learning parts, getting a part that you could reproduce and move along. So when that part came, when that song section came again, you could do it, but maybe you do it different now. You know, maybe the second time you do it, you you do something more interesting, and um, so basically. One of the beautiful things about it was that it showcased the the the, the contributions of, of the three of us. So John really wrote most of what you call Starship Trooper at the beginning, you know. And then when it gets loneliness is a power that we, you know, and that's that's one of Chris's ditties. And then you you do go back to Starship Trooper again, really, you know, with all the right. talk to me of summers, long winters, morning, da, 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 da. And then you get to one, which is like what, what I wrote. Now, I've written that with the group Bodas, which I think we mentioned earlier, yeah. or was that my previous interview? Bodas, yeah. So basically, Nether Street on there has me going, do, 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 the same part. Now, the reason I'd like to get the opportunity just to say that, as far as I knew when I did the Yes album, that those recordings of Bodas were never, ever going to be heard, you know, and you had no idea that they would be reissued or re-released uh, 10 years after they were recorded, which they were. I mean, in the end, I helped them be released by mixing them with right. Gary Lang, Langham. And basically, uh, but so I had the idea, but what I didn't have was the way Yes arranged it, which was to start with very little, you know, mm -hmm. just the guitar, ding, 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 and gradually kind of build, then the bass comes in, big bass pedals. So the whole thing kind of builds. And that was the beauty of 
what became worm, you know, which was a German word. Uh, worm, something like this. I don't know how the hell he got that title, but we were stuck for titles. Now I'm, I'm never short of a good title, but then it was, it was difficult finding a title. But uh, yeah, so Starship was really, and the way we mixed the end, I can remember Eddie and I working out, we had two guitar tracks. And, and fortunately, this one was good. Oh yeah, this one's good now. Oh, that one's good now. And we just like A-B'd them as the tune went out. And uh, we had a lot of fun. So Eddie, Eddie was already starting to kind of make things, when we imagined them, Eddie would make them possible. And, and Starship Troop is a good example. Also on the list, yours is no disgrace. Again, I'm, I'm, these are the four longest songs I'm going to ask you about, obviously. Right. Okay. They, they got There's a lot of story in it. Yeah, I think a lot of Starship Trooper was written in the studio. I mean, not written, but but we worked on it in the studio. We created it. You know, your move and a Starship was much much more cleverly produced, say, than 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 well, certainly what Yes had done before that. But when start yours in those grace was the sort of signature tune of of my arrival in a way, or that you know the Yes album era. You know, you got your da, 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 you got that, and you know what it is. <laughs> That's yours in those grace, and that was a very collaborative tune. It's credited to Yes, all the Yes members, and everybody wrote something in there. You know, and um, basically we were in Devon, uh, where I am now, and we were basically uh young people uh finding unfortold freedom in, in being away from the city and away from touring and right. so we spent a couple of months you know writing the S album and um perpetual change you know that was another great tune but the, the yours most grace yeah that was our most kind of witty number if you like when I mean musically witty you know that you know, the way it came about was almost uncanny and, and it wouldn't have come about like that if we hadn't all been together. So, you, you know, th this is the argument. You could say, oh, let's go back to the old days and sit in a room and drive ourselves mad for three weeks and write a few songs. Yeah, or, <laughs> you know, we don't do it like that much anymore. But um, it doesn't mean we don't get together, but but in a way, well, we do partly collaborate on the structures of songs still. But in those days, it was all about a Revox recording, you know, some Revox going around at seven and a half IPS, you know, with with a recording that you, you cherished because it, in fact, it was it was the only clue you had to what that song existed. And most of it was on cassette actually, you know, just a one, one button cassette recorder. But anyway, I don't know how to describe the construction. We had the ingredients, we had a, a, a percussive intro and then we had the thematic melody, the da 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 da. And, you know, it gave me a chance to kind of find different ways of using a, a delays where the guitar sounded a bit more kind of boppy. And uh, there I was, you see, coming through with a clean guitar sound. And that's what I did was muck around with the, with what the guitar was. Um, much before that, a lot of records, you know, it was fairly stable. The guitar came in and at the end it went out and it, would, it wasn't any different in any, any time. But I, I threw in the, oh, let's have an acoustic here. Let's have that, you know, and given the 10 minute track and particularly the guitar solo after the kind of ding, ding, the stops. What happens after that is pretty much how I, how I wrote, you know, <laughs> it's terrible cliche. Oh, it's how I originally wrote it. But yeah, I mean that's what I had. You know, I had that idea of you know yeah, guitar break. You do, 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 had this, and everybody just said, okay, we'll do that, and that was it. You know, do, 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 do. 
but it took the arrangement and the skill, particularly with Chris. I mean, when we had most of the structure implemented what Chris did, but not when we got to the latter part where Chris invented the do 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 do. Or he took one of the patterns I was using and he kind of developed it into a fantastic bass. So Chris was a great believer in um, having really solid structure for improvisation. He didn't mind how long I went on for, but he didn't want to be jamming as well. He, right. he didn't do that. Chris was not really a jamming guy. Right. He, he liked structure very, very powerful. He knew where he was. He could deliver that. He could have his twerks, you know, his quirks and little twerks in it. So that that song, Bill once said to me about that song, he said, I wish I'd known what you were going to play in the end. And I might have played something different. <laughs> I said, no, Bill, I play what I play because of what you played. You know what I mean? You you made it possible for me to jump on. And that's the jazzy bit or the sustained guitar. As interesting, another point on on Starship Trooper is that there's there's a note on there that took, took us three hours to play. I mean, let's say we had a few smokes and a, and a cup of tea during that three hours but i was trying to get a, no, a note that lasted and it wasn't easy in those days you know and uh, there's a long note that happens i can't even describe it now after the bass feature there's a nice bass feature in the beginning of starship trooper instrumental bit where chris climbs around a lot i come in the background with a fade up long note and i tell you it took three hours to get that note to play it used to get halfway through and it goes I'm not again on the tape. Anyway, silly bit of trivia. Back to yours, you know, Disgrace. It, it, it's one of our cornerstone tracks. You know, I mean, it, it says the Yes album all over it because it opens the Yes album, but it's also rings of of the thematic, lyrical. Look at the lyrics on that. Very, very powerful lyrics. And, uh, you know, um, I, I, I don't know if it's well known, but there may have even been another writer on that song that wasn't credited. So, um, but you can work that one out. So that, yes, brings us, that brings us to Roundabout, which you co-wrote with John. Mm -hmm. And you wrote that, you were in Scotland at the time? Yeah, well, we were, but it, it, it says something kind of sweet great about it. Yeah, we were on tour, basically, and, and John and I kept getting together after the shows or on the day off, after the travel day. We'd sit with, you know, he'd have a guitar, have a guitar, we've got a cassette recorder and a few other ingredients, and we'd just, like, muck about. You know, we called, what have you got? You know, have you got something? Or John might have something on his mind and we stuff. So, yeah, Roundabout came through a lot of those sessions. It was a big song to write, and when we presented it to the band... We had pretty much about three quarters of it, you know, in the sense that we, we did like the way we were, like the ideas we had so far. But of course, they did a bit more expansion. Uh, it was a lot of fun using the studio, not as we did in the Yes album, which was like, it, that reproduces what you can do in the studio. But also what we do on, on Fragile is what you can't, you, or what you can only do in the studio. Right. You know, uh, in the sense of you know backward piano and things like that and, and and the sort of array of overdubbed and techniques that we use to get you know the tunes down so roundabout is our most classic most well-known tune from the 70s so i love it dearly i love the full version you know but the single version got us noticed you know so uh, um they could have asked us to do it and and we could have done it maybe better but basically they took the the big bits out that, that, that they thought they needed um, and this is, it, this is Atlantic it, it, we're talking about, correct? 
that did that. The edits in Roundabout. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And when you first heard what they had done, did you have any idea it would be a hit? Well, you you don't know, really. No, of course you don't know. Um, there's no guarantee. Um, but it showed that they were trying, you know, uh, I guess. They wanted to show. We did go in there and bang out, bang our feet on the floor a bit at Atlantic. So, you know, that you did well on the Yes album. Can you even do better on Fragile? <laughs> and they said, well, we love Roundabout. And here's the edit. So it, it was kind of like a team. Good team. Armit Ertigan was just great to work with. Yeah, t tell me, uh, a few, uh, this is the 75th anniversary of Atlantic Records coming up. Talk to me a little bit about Amon Erdogan and, and what he was like and his influence. Because I'll tell you one thing, he told me on a number of occasions, he would go see Yes, and he would see them multiple nights. And he said, the thing I love is I go every night and it's like a painter in his palette. It's going to be different every time I see them. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, we're very lucky to have um, Armit's interest, support and musical ear, you know, for him to see a few shows and notice the difference. I think he liked the improvisation, you know, that we we included in our show. Although it was a, a tight arrangement show, there were big areas where, you know, I or, or Rick or Patrick or whoever would stretch out, you know, quite a lot. So that was a joy. And Armit had a, had a whole thing, you know, you, it wasn't like you just got a person, you almost got kind of a, um, well, the persona was very powerful. Um, he was, you know, he was charming, he was, he was knowledgeable, he, he was sort of um, very classy kind of guy. You know, you felt like, wow, you know, you could really kind of get a buzz from him and he had a very suave, you know, very suave way. So, I, but those things were just, secondary to his skill to spot you know the great artists that he did over the years and and help you know with his brother help to produce and and bring forward other producers to to look after all the acts he had i mean he loved led, led, led zeppelin as well you know and, genesis uh, foreigner i mean you had, they had the cream of the classic that's right yes and they had and our link with armit was partly uh phil carson who was, you know, uh, a lovely guy who was a record executive who looked after Yes very closely and was a good friend of Chris's and all the guys. We all like Phil and helped us through the solo album period in, in, in the middle. Yeah. But Amit was the real backbone. I remember when he came into, the usual story I tell is Tomato. He came in and heard R Release, Release. I think that's for the last track on the first side or... Yeah. You know, he hears it and he, he says, oh, I like this. He says, Steve, he says, is it all as good as this though? <laughs> and I always found that question really intimidating because he was Armit. I mean, he trusted me, you know, he came to me and he talked to me in the corner. And, you know, so I didn't want to like say, you know, to, uh, I didn't, but there again, I couldn't, you know, couldn't stop the enthusiasm flowing. So I said, I, th I think so, Armit. I, I think we're onto something. And, uh, but that was Tomato, which was a pretty difficult record, I got to say. But I remember many of his visits uh, and it actually one time he visited it after or we were doing a record for Castle or Eagle or another label. He actually came in, dressing him, and said to me, how come you're not doing this live album for, for Atlantic? You know, or some such story. So he he was, he was he did have a level of, and rightly so, he, he did help discover, yes, and, and had the wisdom to sign us, um, besides the other, the other greats that he did. I want to ask you just a couple more questions about yes, and then I want to talk to you a little bit about the tomorrow reissue that you that you worked on. Oh yeah, 
So uh, is it true that uh, you, for a while there before Quest and Mirror, didn't want the band to create and release a new album? And then all of a sudden you changed your mind? Um, well, no, I, I wouldn't say that's exactly accurate. You, you could say that I was always, when people talk about, okay, shall we make a record? And I would say, right, but where's the material? You know, let, let's get, if we're serious, then let's start getting material ready for this. And somebody might say, well, I've got this song, you know, I've got that song. And then I'd say, well, yeah, okay. But that does not make an album. You know, we do need to get a quality material. So I guess I was quality controlling a bit. And maybe that was, uh, maybe that meant that certainly by the time we transitioned into the quest, right. uh, that we had uh, we had an idea where we were going. But when I said, look, I'd like to produce, you know, and I'd like to use Curtis and his studio will be the main main place, but I've recorded tracks here and you've got them over there. So uh, I put the formula together. But, uh, it, you know, if it, it, you know, it had to work. And basically that's the responsibility of the producer, um, you know, to to find the, the, the solutions and keep the mood and the, the enthusiasm, you know, uh, well, the development. Keep that develop. I mean, if, there's, if there was no development in the music, then then you must be doing something really wrong. But that that's how we kind of built along that road. Now I've asked this to I think the other four over the years, but I never had a chance to ask you. Yeah. About the big show during the bicentennial in Philadelphia, where 120,000 people. That yeah. were, Frampton was opening, and Gary Wright was on the bill. And I think it was the Pusset Dart Band might have been the original opener. Sure. How did you feel about that? Because there's there's pictures out there now from the sky of the stadium, and it just looks unbelievable. So what, what are your memories of that show? Well, I mean, at that point, we've never done anything like, you know, I mean, maybe since. There was an enormous event. There was that enormous event, and there was almost this, like it was like a sea, you know, of people. I know you can only use the same words that everybody else uses, but you get out on stage, it's like, you know, sea of people. And there's all sorts of mad stuff going on. It was a little out of control, but I think we got on and played. I seem to remember that um, we flip, usually flip nights with Peter. I, I don't know who, I can't remember who closed. Oh, yes, cl yes, closed. Yes, closed. Oh, yeah. I remember him coming off the stage and saying, it's a fantastic thing out there. You're going to love it to bits. And I said, great, Peter, thanks. Good one. And uh, basically it was like that. It it became a cornerstone of events, really. That, I mean, we've done Madison Square Gardens, you know, many, many times. Right. But basically this was like ginormously big. It almost seems like it was runaway big. You know, it was too big for itself. It couldn't hold itself quite together. I don't know how true that is, but I know there were people burning stuff up the back. Um, for some reason or another, but it was a big and and slightly dangerous, but also it was an event that everybody there won't forget, I guess. And I, I was there, and uh, I, I I have a preference for indoors. You know, as far as my ear tells me, when I'm indoors, I can actually hear what I'm doing really really well, and I can hear what everybody's doing. I can hear what the, even the audience. I can hear what they're doing. So. <clears throat> To hear, um, you know, hear hear what's going on there was was really really exciting. Okay. Mm. So 
let me talk to you about this tomorrow album that's just been oh, reissued. Yeah. It, it's not really a reissue. It's it's a reimagined, right? Yeah. Um, basically, I think the album was very. Um, it was a good opportunity. A good opportunity came with this album to make it better. That that's all I saw, and that didn't involve total remixing or anything because in fact my white bicycle is very much the same it has a little treatment that we gave it but some of the other songs were dire in need you know they were screaming out to my ear screaming out for and along came some technology um it's called rx9 rx10 now and that technology really allows you to look at a, a well we waited a whole year so we could locate the the mono tapes, which really had not been used for any tomorrow mastering for years. These these, these stereo ones have been used, and they're really a problem when you listen to them. It's it, they, they were really awful. So I wanted to get the album back to something I knew was there somewhere. So once we got them with RX10, we were allowed to use that you can do with guitar, bass, drums, and vocals. You, you can actually look at those, and you can take them out the track. You can do anything you want to them and then put them back, back in the track. They're kind of like, they become like a, a wonderful uh, game almost, like a Rubik's Cube. You know, you can turn it around, but if you get it back to where it was before, then anything that was, didn't sound sufficiently good, suddenly was comforted by the other sounds that were already there. So it's a remarkable thing. Um, so basically, that was part of it. But the other thing was we brought all the tunes up to pitch. Some of them were running at below. And then Maya tells me, tune will sound really dire if it's not at the right pitch. And also, Revolution was the biggest project on, on the whole album. And uh, what happened there was that I glued the track back together at one tempo. It's at multi-tempos. And it goes up and down and round about. And we could do that. You know, you can fix all this stuff. So it's just great. Uh, I don't know that 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 Giles Martin needed to do any of this with with the revolver release because basically it had beautiful tracks and they were just gonna like you know freshen them up. But basically what I did was to actually fix you know some major problems, particularly with the pitch. And we could in fact we could improve timing. We could, you know, if the bass was a bit out of tune somewhere, we'd take that off, put it in tune, and basically turn down a guitar that's too loud. You know, that was such a relief. You know, I don't, I don't particularly like to be too loud. I like to be at the right level. You know? right. So we did those adjustments, and that's what the album consists of. Besides, I took off, took off three tracks. You know, Auntie Mary's Dress Shop, blah blah blah. A few songs that were kind of light. They were kind of not really psychedelic band songs, but I replaced them with record studio recordings, all studio recordings until you get to the CD with the two live tracks on the end, which are from a show in 1967. So basically before that, you've got um, all the tracks that are, that are possible uh, in mono with repairs done to them to make them and the running order tweaked. So to, so to make it like a, like a psychedelic group record. <laughs> that was my goal. So I think we've pretty much covered everything. Yeah. So I'm going to sort of end with, uh, is there any Good. kind of a definitive yes documentary that's either in the works or are you discussing? That's the big thing now, obviously, these documentaries, I'm, I'm sure you've seen a lot of them. And I know you've done some things over the years, but there hasn't been a real definitive one. 
Well, that's true. I, I would agree wholeheartedly. With, uh, and I think that might be because there are problems with them. You know, when you look back at what people have said at some point, you know, I've seen some pretty disappointing things when I've looked back and thought, well, that, 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 that. So what make, what doth make a good documentary uh, is the, the insight by the director to understand that this is something of value and he's approaching a certain way. So the last thing I want to see is me walking down Caledonian Road in London and I say to you, oh, that's my score. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to even want to show anybody that. I mean, why would I? I'm a musician. I started, you know, playing the guitar. That's what's interesting. But I don't know if I've got the patience, you know, to agree to a documentary because A, I, Although I do interviews and I'm enjoying talking to you, Denny, I, I'm not actually built every day to get up and think I want to talk about myself. <laughs> I mean, there is a limit to that. And when you know it's a key thing and you've got the video and everybody's filming, you kind of wonder really what they're hoping to get because reality television isn't real. Right. And nor is an interview that's kind of clammy or uncomfortable or set up, you know, that you're supposed to reveal or you you know, so if somebody, I think it might be more interesting for people, somebody to invent their own storyline that that addresses all the events in Yes's career. That would be an amazing to think, to thing to think of. But I don't know how that would be possible. But I, I don't look forward to another round of this guy's going to talk to everybody, and you know, you know, no, no, not not like a behind the music type where you tell. No, I think I've really burned on that stuff. Uh, I mean, I like doing interviews, you know, we were talking one to one. I can see the point in this. It's really nice. But uh, as far as like, you know, deciding how to collaborate, as I said, I, what I'm thinking about really, let me get to the point, is the band, you know, the way that Scorchese did did the film, you know, he took it seriously, he did that right. Um, I've also seen a very good documentary of Robbie talking about the band that, that isn't that, you know. So, um, but when you've got particular topics, it, it's kind of good. If you're trying to tell the whole story of a band, you know, wow. I mean, I'd like to think that was possible. And maybe, you know, maybe it is, but, um, and, and certainly I'd like it to be right. So that would be a reason somebody would say to me, well, if you want this to be right, perhaps you better be in it. <laughs> but well, if it I comes don't up, just so you know, and you probably remember some of it, and I, I have a lot of video, and a lot of audio, especially I, I would go to Lidditz a couple of times and interview you. So yeah. I've got that period covered. So when you do eventually get around to it, have somebody contact me, I got some great stuff. <laughs> right, yeah. But so there we are, the, a, a historical thing, you know, ha, ha, somebody might want to do that. And uh, okay, then Danny, that, that's great. That's all right. That's good. I will bear right. that in mind. Well, see, mm -hmm. I want to thank you for taking time because I know you, you don't usually give a lot of interviews and I, I had to actually call Martin and say, you know, it's me. I think Steve will, <laughs> will say yes. I don't say, and he got right back to me. He says, yes, Steve, we'll talk to you. And yeah. I appreciate it very much. Uh, right, I'm living in Florida now, so I'm going to wait oh, and yeah. see what dates you have. And I'll probably see you at one of the Florida shows. Well, some of the shows we did down in Florida last year were some of our best shows. I came off saying, okay, I'm not a fan of Florida, to be honest. Not, a, I mean, you know, it's not my top, top state, right. but basically I, 
I, I was delighted that some of the shows we played were really exciting musically and the, 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 there was a great listening audience there. So I look forward to getting back. See you there. <laughs> okay. Thanks a lot, Steve. Have a good day and uh, right. good luck with the tour. Okay. Thanks a lot, Denny. Thank you, man. Bye. Thank good you, to see you. Okay. Take care. Be well. That's my conversation with Steve Howe of Yes. I hope you liked what you heard. Tell your friends. We're available on all the usual platforms, wherever you get your podcasts. And we have a video version on YouTube as well. You can also sign up to our channel and you'll be notified when a new episode is released. And of course, it's free, no charge. It's just a lot of rock and roll stories. By the way, The Rock Podcast is now the number one podcast for classic rock. So thanks for listening. Find us at the website, therockpodcast.com. We have a Facebook page, and you can send your comments, questions, suggestions. Contact me via email at hello at therockpodcast.com. That's hello at therockpodcast.com. I read it all. Love hearing from you. Till next time, I'm Denny Somak, and for now, that's it.